Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Part 12 The Promise of the Holy Ghost During the discourse of our Lord at the Last Supper, one new doctrine if indeed it may be called new, was repeatedly impressed on his disciples. The doctrine of the coming of the paraclete, the Holy Ghost. In the teaching of this new doctrine, one thing is markedly evident. The coming of the Holy Ghost especially for the twelve, for them first and then for their followers. What the Holy Ghost, when he comes, will give will be peculiarly theirs and will belong to no other. When he has come and has worked his full effect, the man who receives him will be made another creature, seeing more, understanding more, able to do and to endure more than ever he could have done without him. In the light and strength given by the Holy Ghost, the whole perspective and horizon and goal of life will be transformed. It will be set upon another plane. In other words, nowhere more than here has Jesus Christ our Lord explicitly revealed and sanctioned all that the Church has since elaborated in her doctrine of sanctifying grace and indeed in her whole system of supernatural theology. What is this new doctrine which Jesus gives us of the paraclete so far as it is new? He explains it to his apostles in four successive stages. First, the Spirit of Truth. Early in the evening of the supper, Thomas and Philip had put questions and had been given their answers, in which Jesus had appealed to them to realize the union that existed between him and the Father. He had told them that to know the one was to know the other, to see the one was to see the other, to love the one was to love the other, to reject the one was also to reject the other as he had said many times already to the Jewish elders in the temple. Then he reverted to the main theme of his discourse. If you love me, keep my commandments. And as if in reward for doing so, or as if this were a natural consequence, he immediately went on, And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him. But you shall know him, because he shall abide with you, and shall be in you. Thus from the outset it is made clear that the first condition for the life of grace, for the coming of the Holy Ghost, is the acceptance and personal love of Jesus Christ himself. And the proof of that love is the doing of his will. If you love me, keep my commandments. In return for that love and for the service of love that follows it, he who is ever living to make intercession for us will, with his infallible power of prayer, intercede for us with the Father and will infallibly be heard. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. There shall be given to men who love and follow him another person, one not liable to death as he who speaks, one from whom there will be no separation, 
but whom once he has come we may have as our abiding companion, our paraclete, our intercessor, always. This person, this paraclete, this spirit, real and individual even as himself, is described as the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him. But you shall know him, because he shall abide with you, and shall be in you. He is the essence of all truth and reality, and transparent sincerity, in contrast with the surface appearance, and shallow seeming and groping ignorance, which is the best this world has to offer. Men look across this world, and they see nothing beyond it. They judge by the standards of this world and reach no further. They are hemmed in by this narrow horizon and cannot recognize that all their estimates and judgments are made on a limited and therefore a doubtful plane. But the knowledge and love and following of Jesus Christ carry man beyond his prison wall and set his vision along a new perspective, even the perspective of the infinite. The effort to do his will beyond all other will, especially his own, sets him in a new order, along which he may obtain a nobler goal of being. The spirit of truth responds to and fosters that vision and that effort. He lifts man's mind and heart out of the bondage of his nature into a sphere that is entirely new. The spirit of truth is a living spirit, as living as Jesus himself. He lives with man. He lives in man. He speaks to man and in return accepts and interprets man's stammering words when he endeavors to speak to the infinite, his companion, his guide, his instructor, forever at his side and in his heart. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man but the spirit of a man that is in him? So the things also that are of God no man knoweth but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit that is of God, that we may know the things that are given to us from God. Second, the infallible Spirit. Such is the first introduction of the Holy Ghost, the Paraclete. He is the Spirit of truth beyond every other, who will abide with his own forever. A little later in the discourse, Jesus gives his disciples more. In the first place, he had simply said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And in return, the promise had followed. Now he expands the form of his appeal. If any man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and will make our abode with him. And at once, as if the two were inevitably connected, the promise is likewise expanded. These things I have spoken to you, abiding with you. But the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring all things to your mind whatsoever I shall have said to you. The Spirit of truth is real, is present, is abiding. By his presence, he opens up a new horizon, a new life, to those who can and will receive him. Thus much we have already been told. Now we hear of a special and all-important function which he will perform for all time, 
for the twelve had been chosen that they should be with him, and that he might send them to preach. And the day would come when he would extend that commission, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. They were to preach with an authority and infallibility equal to his own. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And this for a very plain reason, for it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father that speaketh in you. To the twelve then had been given, or was to be given, the commission to teach whatsoever he had taught them to all nations, not only to this nation or that. There was to be nothing national or circumscribed in their mission. It was to be for all the world alike. That they should receive the teaching aright, that they should hand it on to their successors untarnished, could not but have been a matter of deep moment to the twelve. How deeply they cherished it, how they clung to the truth of their tradition, may be seen in the epistles of St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. John. In those first days, having as yet as they thought, only their human light to guide them, they must often have wondered and discussed among themselves how they could keep it all in mind. They would ask themselves how they could be sure they understood aright, for often enough they were bewildered. How could they hand it on, unspoilt by anything of their own, to those who would come after them, and had not had the advantage of having known the Lord? There was so much they had not understood, and yet had not ventured to inquire. So much they had mistaken, and he had been obliged to correct them. So much they had ignored and set aside. So much they had already forgotten. Often enough he had complained to them that they did not see, that they were without understanding, that they had not yet known him, that they were slow of heart to believe. Moreover, when their turn for teaching came, when they came in contact with men of learning and experience, with subtle Pharisees and learned scribes and practice exponents of the law, how could they hope to speak as Jesus spoke, with authority, or teach without a flaw, or a compromise, or a surrender, what he had entrusted to them? Such thoughts and fears, human and natural, must often have made them wonder. Now they are given an assurance which would allay all their doubts. On a former occasion when he had first sent them out with a commission to teach, he had looked far into the distant future and had encouraged them. When they shall deliver you up, take no thought how or what to speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what to speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father that speaketh in you. Or, as another evangelist puts it, and when they shall bring you into the synagogues and to the magistrates and powers, be not solicitous how or what you shall answer or what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you must say. But now they are assured of much more. The paraclete, the spirit of truth, will always be with them. He himself will teach them. He will help them to remember. He will see to it that nothing essential is forgotten or misinterpreted or falsely taught by those whom Jesus has chosen and who love him and keep his word. In the first promise, we have been given the foundation of the spiritual life, the Holy Ghost living in the soul. Here, we are given the foundations of the church, 
the Holy Spirit living in its members, making all one, speaking with that infallible voice which is his own. Third, the witness to Jesus. A third time, he comes back to the same subject. It is after the long lesson on the union of his disciples with himself, even as is the union of the branches with the vine, with all its life-saving effects. At the end of that vivid passage, he speaks, by contrast, of the world which is separated from him, which hates him. There, he says, If I had not done among them the works which no other man hath done, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But that the word may be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without cause. Here once more we find Jesus seeking excuse for those who hated him, finding that excuse in the fulfillment of prophecy. More than once, when he had used the Psalms for his prayer, the refrain had recurred, and he cannot but recall it now. Consider my enemies, for they are multiplied, and have hated me with an unjust hatred. Let not them that are my enemies wrongfully rejoice over me, who have hated me without cause, and wink with their eyes. They are multiplied above the hairs of my head, who hate me without cause. Then, as it were in answer to this unfounded hatred, he proceeds, But when the paraclete cometh, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceedeth from the Father, he will give testimony of me, and you shall give testimony, because you are with me from the beginning. This, then, is the third function of the Spirit of truth that is to come. First, he will live in them, and will open their understanding and their hearts, so that they will be other creatures. They will live now, not they, but he will live in them. Next, he will bring back to their minds all that has been taught them. With his help, they shall not forget or misinterpret. They shall be infallible. Now, in the third place, through them to the world outside that does not know Jesus Christ, and therefore without cause hates him, the Holy Spirit will provide the evidence for that same Jesus Christ for all men to see who will. Jesus Christ that was and Jesus Christ that is, the historic Christ, the Christ of history, Jesus Christ who died and rose again and dieth no more, Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and the same forever. To all this the Spirit of truth shall give witness. The world may hate Jesus Christ and the Father, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will give to all, friends and enemies alike, proof beyond doubt. Of the reality of both. Nay more, to his own he will give the means by which they too may bear witness, that witness which all the world, either by love or hatred, by accepting it or persecuting it unto death, will be compelled to acknowledge. Fourth, the Comforter. Lastly, in a fourth place, Jesus sums up all he has said. He must leave his twelve alone. He must reconcile them to the parting. He finds a means to reconcile them in the good that will come to them from the separation. I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go. For if I go not, the paraclete will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he is come, he will convince the world of sin and of justice and of judgment. 
of sin because they believe not in me, and of justice because I go to the Father, and you shall see me no longer, and of judgment because the prince of this world is already judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Though when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will teach you all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but what things soever he shall hear, he shall speak. And the things that are to come, he shall show you. He shall glorify me, because he shall receive of mine, and shall show it to you. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. Therefore I said that he shall receive of mine, and show it to you. Immediately before this fourth assurance, Jesus had spoken in detail of what would one day come to his beloved twelve because of the hatred of the world. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the hour cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doth a service to God. When that day arrived then, he knew they would indeed be in need of him. Then they might wonder and fear and be scandalized. And this is the consolation that he gives himself at the same time that it is to be the source of their hope and courage. In the paraclete whom he would send, they would find an abiding companion, one who would never leave them, who on one side would prove their enemies to be wrong, sinful, unjust, guilty, and on the other would not only preserve for them all they had been taught, but would himself teach them yet more. He would lead them by the hand into the future, even into that more distant future, which would make all present passing suffering worthwhile. Amen, amen, I say to you, that you shall lament and weep, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be made sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. He would open their minds and hearts to a yet deeper understanding of himself. He would give them all the light and all the life that he, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, had not yet been able to give them. All that they as yet, for they were still but little children, had not been able to receive. The Holy Ghost would give to them all that the Father had in store for them, for both the Father and the Son would commission him to give it. Through the Holy Ghost, they would receive the full outpouring of the Blessed Trinity. These, then, are the four revelations of the Holy Ghost made to us by Jesus Christ our Lord at the most solemn moment of his life, when his love was prompting him to a divine excess of giving. The washing of the feet at the beginning of the supper, the gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist, the conferring of the priesthood, making himself the prisoner of men for all time, had not exhausted his store. Now as a climax had come this, the gift of the divinity itself, so far as it could be given the indwelling in man of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, whose presence will henceforth make of man another creature, whose mind will guide him to see and to speak without erring, whose strong protection will vindicate truth before all the world, union with whom will bestow on man the sonship of God himself. When we try to fathom the meaning of this divine indwelling, we are lost in mystical wonder. We are now the sons of God, but we know not what we shall be. To Nicodemus in the early days, the Pharisee who had come to him by night, and who was himself not unacquainted with mystical interpretation, 
Jesus had already spoken of the rebirth that would come of water in the Holy Ghost. The advent of the Father into the human soul through baptism would be a recreation. In the synagogue at Capernaum, he had told his hearers of the further new life that would be theirs from the eating of himself. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, the same also shall live by me. The indwelling of the Son would give to men everlasting life, life in another sphere of existence from the valley of this death, in which they would live on when this life came to an end. Now he speaks of yet a third indwelling, that of the Holy Ghost, as real as that of the Father and of the Son. By it man is lifted up into union with the Godhead, made partaker of the divinity, even as the Son of God has been made partaker of our humanity. What this means, who shall venture to say? But also, who shall say what it does not mean? St. John and St. Paul have spent themselves in manifesting its significance, and the further we seek under their guidance, the more we discover there is yet to be known. Dearly beloved, we are now the sons of God, and it hath not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like to him, because we shall see him as he is, and every one that hath this hope in him sanctifieth himself, as he also is holy. From St. John. And from St. Paul. And because you are sons, God hath sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, now he is not a servant, but a son. And if a son, an heir also through God. <laughs>